life is hardly worth living and your food seems hardly worth digesting, you are greatly, greatly to be pitied. And there is an answer. And the scripture will make the answer clear in the next half hour. There is an answer. There's a very well-known book by Basil King uh, called The Conquest of Fear. And he begins the book by saying, During most of my conscious life, I have been subject to fear. I cannot remember the time when a dread of one kind or another was not in the air. You see, we begin life with fear. We begin with two particular fears, the fear of a loud noise and the fear of falling. Everybody enters life with those two fears. It's not long before we've got scores and scores and scores of other fears taught us by people. And unless we learn how to handle them, my friends, those fears will eat us up. They'll destroy us. Both God and the devil use fear as a tool. Not all fears are bad. Fear can save your life when you're crossing a road or when you're driving a car. And in a slow way, even when you're using a knife and fork. You ever notice that the word death is spelled D-E-A-T-H? Ever noticed? You can have too much of a good thing, and most of us do. I'm talking about food and fear. What's our main fear? Look with me at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Here the writer says, talking about what Christ has done. 14th verse, it's spoken about Christ through death that he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. My friends, the essence of all fears is actually the fear of death. We say that's not true. I'm afraid of losing my reputation, losing my money, losing my children. No, my friends, all of them have their roots in the fear of death. We see money as something that prolongs life and postpones death. The death of our reputation seems to us the next thing to the death of ourselves. All fears have as their heart the fear of death. You examine your fears one day and see if it's not so. And all our lifetimes, we're subject to that bondage. You see, the world is just one great grave. And in many places of earth, the dust on which we walk has been man. Death is the greatest fact about life. How can we live if we can't handle it? Plato said all that philosophy is, is talk about death and dying. Tremendously important. We cannot live unless we know the truth about death. The ultimate sadness of life, the ultimate tragedy of life is not the distinctive harrowing experiences that overtake us or those we love, separate individuals. The ultimate tragedy of life is that nothing lasts. That the bloom of youth so easily is lost. 
that the vigour of maturity lasts so briefly. That's the ultimate tragedy of life. Age brings a weariness, a forgetfulness, a decay that foreshadows the coming of oblivion and corruption in the grave. That's why in our sincerest laughter, some pain is still present. Foolish people try and thrust the thought of death behind them. Wise people live with it. The only person who can really live properly is the one who's made his last day his company keeper. Wouldst thou live well, said John Bunyan? Make your last day your company keeper. Life is a brief candle and it's blown out. Well, this school, that's it. How do we handle it? We all know of Somerset Maugham, who wrote The Moon and Sixpence and many other well-known books. In his writer's notebook, he ended with these words. I am like a passenger waiting for his ship at a wartime port. I do not know the day on which it will sail, but I am ready to embark at a moment's notice. I read the papers and flip the pages of the magazine, but when someone offers me a book, I refuse it. I may not have time to finish it. In any case, with this journey before me, I'm not of a mind to interest myself in it. I strike up an acquaintance at the bar or the card table. I don't try to make friends with people, people from whom I'll be so soon parted. I am on the wing. You say, that's all right for Somerset Morn. He was scores of years old, but not me. I've got a long way to go. My friends, the first person that died in this world was not an old man. Eight people out of a 100 die of old age. Your chances are very slim of dying of old age. Very slim. Nothing is so amazing as the flight of time. Some of you saw on TV the interview with Bob Hope on his 80th birthday. And as usual, he cracked a joke about it. He said, why, it's only a few minutes ago and I was 45. Well, he may have been exaggerating a little, but I can remember before I was a Christian and the theatre was my Bible, I can remember seeing Bob Hope, and uh, it's longer than a few minutes. I would say maybe a few months. Maybe a few months. The most tragic thing of life, the most deceiving thing of life, is this swift passage of the arrow to its target death. I can remember one day, I was in my 20s, and I was sitting in a, in a, in a car with a close friend of mine, a minister, with whom... I had a wonderful fellowship. He was vigorous, strong, alert, intelligent. I somehow thought of him like me. <laughs> in age, he was a better man than me. But in age, I thought of him as being like me. And suddenly he said, Des, you know, and I thought, what are you going to say? He looks so serious. He's got no murders to confess. What's he going to say? He said, Des, and he gulped. He said, Des, I'm 40 today. And I looked at him as though he'd said he'd committed a murder. I belonged to the young tribe, like Calvin, still in my twenties. And here was my close friend that I thought of as one of myself, and he was confessing he was 40. Couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. I still remember my anger when I found I was too old for the missionary volunteers. I was now 30. Yeah. My friend's life travels very fast. It is true that the 20, first 20 years, the longest half of anybody's life, 
you know, from one Christmas to another, when you're five, is a fifth of a lifetime. When you're 70, it's a 70th of a lifetime. Life is traveling 13 to 14 times as quickly when you're 70 as when you're five. See? For most of us, people like me, I'm in that age bracket where, where heart attacks are the most frequent. I think of it often because my life's been a bit of a furious life, you know. It's uh, hardly seemed to stop. And uh, myself, I, I seem to dez on you and my teens. But uh, the pictures, the mirrors tell me different. The calendar tells me different. But a person that's where I stand is at 11 o'clock at night. 11 o'clock at night. And midnight's not far away. I'm talking in terms of the way we experience time. You see? There's not long to go. The first 20 years, the longest time. How do we reckon with this? What do we do with it? How do we handle it? We don't know, my friend. We may become sick or we may become useless. We can joke about it. George Bernard Shaw said, when he was challenged about immortality, he said, I couldn't endure being George Bernard Shaw forever. Well, if you know George Bernard Shaw, we can appreciate that. <laughs> Someone else wrote on his tombstone, had written on his tombstone. We don't do much writing. After death. Don't bother me now. Don't bother me never. I want to be dead forever and ever. Really? Truly? No, my friends, not so. We love life. We cling to it. There are easy ways out today. Someone's even written a book on how to commit suicide. He's not too much in earnest or he could never have gotten through so many pages. You know. But it can be done very simply. But most of us cling to life. I have a close relative that was spoiled by World War II, ruined in his religious experience, and he's always throwing off at Christianity and so on. And I, I laugh at him. I say, look, uh, if I insisted that uh, Father Christmas was alive, you'd never get upset arguing with me on that. You couldn't care less, but you get upset about God, don't you? And furthermore, I see that you persist in living. While you tell me that everything's so terrible and there couldn't be a God of love, life's so awful, so filled with tragedy, here you, my friend, are still living. You choose to live on. You, an ex-soldier, you know how to cop out, but you live. Live. Life is precious, my friends. What was written on that tombstone is not true. Don't bother me now. Don't bother me never. I want to be dead forever and ever. Nobody does. We want to live. We want to live. So we have to ask the question, does Christianity teach something very definite on this? Is God going to scrap individuals when their hair is grey and their pulse stops? Is that it? If God treats individually that lightly, why can't we? The end of life is a zero, my friends. Everything else is a zero. Instead of picking up that hitchhiker, run over him. Instead of feeding that child, strangle it. If the end of life is a zero, everything before it is a zero. We say, sentimentally, life can be beautiful. My friends, life with a dagger in it is not beautiful. If you had a bouquet of flowers whose fragrance slew, you wouldn't think of that bouquet as being very beautiful. You'd think it was diabolic. Tennyson wrote this. You know Tennyson lost a friend, Arthur Hallam. And it affected him tremendously. But the world's been blessed when he wrote his famous poem in memoriam. And Tennyson in one place wrote this. The good, the true, the pure, the just. Take the charm of forever from them. 
and they crumble into dust. Gone the cry of forward, forward, lost within a growing gloom, Lord, or only heard in silence, the silence of a tomb. Do you see it? There is no good, there is no truth, there is no beauty or justice unless there's immortality. Waning seasons depart. Blight always follows beauty. Most beautiful things we know. The peak of creation, womanhood. Girls like flowers born to blossom and to fade. Every night time is a mini death. We lie down in stillness. Special robes, you know, most of us don't hop in in our suit or our best dress. Special robe, lie down the stillness, off with the light. Nothing happens, you know, if you're a good sleeper. It's a mini death, my friend. It's a little parable. In a month or two's time, the leaves will be falling, the autumn leaves. Every leaf is a parable. Every sickness is a mini death, saying, get ready, get ready. We are fools if we do not take seriously the fact of death. Death is the monument of sin. Death is the token that life is meaningless without Christ. Now there's one book in the Bible that's written specially to deal with the problem. The key is usually at the door in Bible books. As you open the door of this book, there's an interview with an old fisherman. An old fisherman of fish and men. And this man is battling with the problem of fear, not because he's old, because he fears the whole church may soon become a mausoleum of the dead. He has heard that over there Antipas has been martyred. He sees clouds on the horizon. He receives visions about a beast and persecution. He sees the witnesses of God being put in a, in a tomb, not properly buried. He's afraid that martyrdom is going to break out all over the Roman Empire and destroy the church and turn it into a great cemetery. Look at Revelation chapter 1. This book is the answer to fear, the answer to death, and the answers are revealed in an interview with John. Before I read it, get to the mood of it, let me read you what one poet has said about the reflections of John later than this event at Patmos when really about to die. Here's John thinking. Some 70 years ago, I was a fisher by the sacred sea. It was at sunset. How the tranquil tide bathed dreamily the pebbles. How the light crept up the distant hills. And in its wake, soft purple shadows wrapped the dewy fields. And then he came, he called me, and I gazed for the first time on that sweet face. Those eyes, from out of which, as from a window, shone divinity, looked on my inmost soul and lighted it forever. Then his words broke on the silence of my heart and made the whole world musical. Incarnate love took hold of me and claimed me for its own. I followed in the twilight, holding fast his mantle. So raise my head, how dark it is. I cannot seem to see the faces of my flock. Is that the sea that murmurs so, or is it weeping? Hush, 
my little children. My legacy to an angry world is this. God so loved the world that he gave his son. So love ye one another. Love God and man. Amen. Now bear me back. I feel my work is finished. Are the streets so full? What call the folk my name? The Holy John? Nay, write me rather, Jesus Christ, beloved and lover of my children. Lay me down once more upon my couch and open wide the eastern window. See, there comes a light like that which broke upon my soul at eve when in the dreary isle of Patmos Gabriel came and touched me on the shoulder. See, it grows as when we mounted toward the pearly gates. I know the way. I trod it once before. Hark, it is the song the ransom sang of glory to the Lamb. How loud it sounds. And that unwritten one. Methinks my soul can join it now. O my Lord, my Lord, how bright thou art. And yet the very same I loved in Galilee. Tis worth the hundred years to feel this bliss. So lift me up, dear Lord, unto thy bosom. There shall I abide. He's thinking back to his time of exile on Patmos, a little barren island of 10 miles by 15 miles that had the salt mines. And political prisoners were consigned there to work themselves to death. In the providence of God, John left that island and went back to Ephesus to be pastor in his last years to a loving flock. But let's look at this story of the exile, Revelation chapter 1. And we'll notice what it says in verse 9. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. I was in the isle called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Then you have this scene of Christ. Glorious is the sun, his voice like the sound of many waters, walking among the candlesticks, holding the stars in his hand. And notice his words When John fell at his feet. We'll begin at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. I am the first and the last. I am Alpha and Omega. I am he that liveth and was dead. I have the keys of death and the grave. This word Hades, sometimes translated hell, it's the word that's used for the grave. Literally it means the place where no one can see. The place where it's so dark. You can neither see nor do. Christ has the keys of the grave. Those doors never swing open except by his permission. A woodsman knows the trees should not all be fallen at the same time. Some should be felled at a certain time in spring. Some should be felled at the time in autumn, early autumn. Some should be felled in late autumn. The woodsman knows, and Christ is the great woodsman. Evil, Satan, antagonisms, may set afoot the machinery of death as it was so with Jesus. But none of God's saints, all except by his permission and in his time, he has the keys of the grave. The grave is part of Emmanuel's empire. 
Those doors can't burst open without his permission. And so Jesus says, fear not. Fear not. We've said it so often. There are 365 of those in the Bible. One for every day in the year. Fear not. One of the earliest scenes in the gospel story is the angels coming down in choir, singing to the shepherds. and Ultimately, they speak to them. Fear not. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour which is Christ the Lord. Fear not. And at the other end of the story, when the women go to the tomb and it's empty, the angel says, fear not. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not dead, but he's risen. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Fear not. And then he appears to them in the upper room. These guilty men had forsaken him. And he says, fear not. Peace be unto you. Handle see. Fear not. We're meant to take it literally, my friends. What is the clue to these references to darkness that are so prominent in Scripture? The book of Revelation is full of them. In the sixth chapter, we read about the sun being darkened, the moon not giving her light. In the ninth chapter, there's a tremendous smoke out of the pit that covers the light. The fifth plague, the whole earth is covered with darkness and blackness. Let's look at a clue in Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is the chapter about the everlasting covenant. It's the chapter about imputed righteousness. It's the chapter that begins with the admonition, fear not. Look at Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And then you know the sixth verse very well. He believed the Lord and The Lord counted it to him as righteousness. But now on what basis can God say, don't fear, Abraham? You, Abraham, who told a fib about your wife. You, Abraham, who, although the man of faith has so often been faithless, how can God say to him, fear not? Doesn't sin leave us open to pain and trouble, attack, the wrath of God? How can God impute to him righteousness? We have the clue further down. He's told to take sacrificial animals. You'll see it there in verse 9. The animals are brought. And then in verse 11, when birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and lower dread and great darkness fell upon him. Then after that you have the promise of the inheritance. Verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, and so on. What's it saying, my friends? We talked about the great darkness yesterday. That darkness was a symbol of the results of sin. Darkness is the symbol of separation from God. Darkness is the symbol of death, of Hades, to which Christ says he has the keys. Fear not, I have the keys of darkness. When our Lord promised to Abraham the everlasting inheritance, when our Lord made there in Genesis 15, the covenant with Abraham, a covenant over sacrifice and imputed to him righteousness. Associated with it was this terrible darkness, a horror of a great darkness. Abraham is permitted to feel the Calvary experience. As he enacted it with his boy when he took his son, who for three days was under the sentence of death, who carried on his back the wood on which he was to be offered as Christ carried his cross. And they walked together to Moriah. Moriah is Jerusalem, you know. It's the same place. Abraham, who was to enact Calvary, experienced the horror of Calvary. 
He sees the terrible nature of sin and what his saviour will take upon himself that men might be freed from fear because freed from guilt. You see, scripture says the sting of death is what? Sin. The sting of death is sin. The reason people are afraid of death is not because they think it might be the end, because they think it won't be. It's appointed unto men once to die, but after this, judgment. That's why people are afraid of death. It brings them face to face with the Almighty whom they have despised, whom they have counted as of no account. We've been the Almighty, pleasing ourselves. We creatures of the day, creatures of the dust. We've acted like God. Man turned this beautiful world into a hell when he said to God, not thy will but mine be done. That's what brought the shadows. That's what brought the darkness. That's what still brings it, my friends. We say to God, not thy will, mine be done. Then came one who in Gethsemane and Calvary said, not my will but thine be done. And he turned hell back into paradise and showed us the way. Do you remember at the time of the Exodus when the Passover lamb was to be slain that would give protection to the Israelites and allow them to make their way out of that that captive country in safety? Do you remember what happened? There was a great darkness that could be felt and only in the houses of the Israelites was there light. And at that time the firstborn in the land of Egypt died. My friends, to be born once means to die twice. To be born twice means to die but once, if at all. And because of the cross, that once has turned into a sleep. A sleep. But if we are found only as the firstborn in that great judgment day, we will die amid the terrors of the great darkness of separation from God. Abandonment by our Creator. That's why I was the firstborn that died in Egypt. Scripture says that which is first is carnal, afterwards that which is spiritual. You read Genesis, wherever you've got two brothers, the first is carnal and the second is spiritual. Just to illustrate, it doesn't mean predestination. Cain is carnal. The firstborn represents how we're born. We're all born like Cain, murderous, hateful. Afterwards that which is spiritual, Abel. Take Isaac and Jacob. Think of the contrasts. Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, they're the the ones I mean. Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael's a wild man. His hand's against every man, but he's the firstborn. Represents how you and I are, wild people to start with. We judge each other by the barriers they put in our way. That's how we judge people. We're like Ishmael. We're wild. Then came Isaac, child of promise. And Isaac's boys, Esau, profane man. Didn't think much of the birthright. But Jacob wrestles with God and becomes a changed man. So in the great darkness, the firstborn dies. And ultimately, when the great darkness sheaths the whole world again at the coming of Christ, those that are only the firstborn will die eternally in the horrors of abandonment from God, in the hell of isolation from the Creator. Remember at Sinai when God came down and gave the law? Would you look? Quickly at one verse with me in Exodus 20, when God came down and gave the law that revealed his own character, that basic law, those principles that are as enduring as earth itself. Notice, please, in that 20th chapter, 
what it says in association with the record of the giving of the law, verse 21, and the people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. My friends, if you belong to God's people, you will know times of darkness, but the darkness is where God is for you. Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Why the darkness? Because with the proclamation of that law to guilty men, the fear of damnation and death came upon them. Oh, yes, they could look at some of those laws and say, well, we don't kill, we don't steal. But among the words that God uttered were these, showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. God does not accept commandment keeping unless it comes from a loving heart. Among the words that were spoken from Sinai were the words that demanded love. Them that love me and keep my commandments. Read the second commandment. And as Israel heard those words, they trembled because they knew many of them, their obedience was outward. It was formal. It didn't spring from love. Yet God had tried to teach them. He didn't give them the law till he redeemed them. I'm the Lord thy God that brought thee out of the house of bondage. Therefore, here's the way you'll live. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. They become promises to the redeemed soul. The precious privileges of loving obedience to the Redeemer. Those that didn't understand that read it. Thou shall not kill. Thou shall not steal. Thou shall not commit adultery. And they saw the darkness of hell because they wanted to or they had or they might. There in the thick darkness was God as it would be when the penalty of that law would be enacted 15 centuries later, when the penalty of that law would fall on God himself. It wasn't an innocent third party at the cross. It was the God sinned against who bore the penalty. He was in the thick darkness. And so here it's at Patmos. The Lord is saying, I have the keys of the darkness I have the keys of death and hell. Fear not. Fear not. The sting of death is sin. And when Christ dealt with sin, he dealt with death. He abolished death. Second Timothy 1 says, verse 10, he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. My friends, if you're a believer, death doesn't exist for you. Oh, you say, but I've had friends who are believers and they did die. My friends, they fell asleep in Christ. They fell asleep in Christ. If a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. There's no such thing as death in the sense of dark abandonment for the Christian. When you fall, my friend, you fall into the hands of God. You sleep in Jesus 50 times, Scripture calls death asleep. You will have no sense of abandonment, no sense of loss. You rest in his hand till he calls you forth on the resurrection morning. When Christ dealt with sin, he dealt with death. And since death is the root source of all our other fears, if we can see this truth, it will deal with our fears. I, by nature, am as full of fears as there are bees in a, in a beehive. I have an imagination that's a blessing and a curse. I can think of 20 eventualities of tragedy and sorrow where some of my friends don't see any. I envy them. But the only answer is to see that when Christ dealt with sin, he dealt with death and he dealt with fear. 
That's why he can say in the same breath, Fear not, I am he that liveth and was dead. I have the keys of the grave. My friends, Christ is the great transformer. He changed water into wine. He changed the paralytic into someone with energy and vitality. He changed the loaves and fishes into a multitude provision. He's the great transformer. And he transforms death. Christ lighted up everything he touched, my friends. And when he went into the tomb, he lighted that up. We're not going somewhere where Christ hasn't been. He's changed its nature. He's transformed it. Nothing wrong with the rest at the end of a hard day. That's all death will be to the Christian. That's all it is. Notice that Jesus says to John, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What he's saying is, you remember back there at the Exodus, John? Because Revelation 1 is based on the Exodus experience. Mentions the Lamb and the priesthood and the Yahweh title of I am, so on. Remember back there, John? Moses said, who shall I tell them has sent me? And God said, tell them, I am that I am. And so now in this story, Jesus appears and says, I am. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am he that liveth and was dead. He speaks about himself as enduring into tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. The ever-living one. I am. It's an unsigned check. You can write in whatever you want. What do you need? Wisdom? I am thy wisdom. What do you need? Strength? I am thy strength. What do you need? Righteousness? I am thy righteousness. See the glory of the title, my friend. Whatever you want, you can write it in there. I am. Whatever you need. What a wonderful God is ours. Boy, I feel I need everything. By nature, I'm a clumsy messer. And I tarnish everything I touch. Unless I have a Christ, life has no meaning for me. No meaning whatever. And death can only have terror. But with Christ, it's different. He's the great I am. Everything I need, it's in him. You know, there are many names for Yahweh in scripture that are compound. You find names like this, Yahweh Jireh, sometimes called Jehovah Jireh. Yahweh Nisi. Yahweh Shalom. Yahweh Sidkenu. Yahweh Shammah. You know what these words mean? Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Jireh. You find that in the Abraham story. When Isaac was rescued from death and God revealed himself as Yahweh Jireh, which means the Lord shall see and provide. Isn't that a great title? Are you in trouble, my friends? i got lots of them. Healthy, like a dog, needs fleas. We need problems. We need problems, my friends. Otherwise, we become proud, self-sufficient, lack sympathy, don't cling to God. We need troubles. But God says, I am Yahweh Jireh, the God that sees and provides. What do we need to fear about if God knows? He's a tender, loving parent. The best parent that's ever existed is only a faint glimmer of what God is. I am the God that sees and provides. Read it in the Genesis story about Isaac and the sacrifice. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is our banner. When Amalek came in to destroy Israel, God revealed himself as Yahweh Nissi, the Lord, our banner. When the enemy comes in like a flood, God lifts up a standard against him. God's our protection. He's our banner. You don't have to defend yourself, my friends. The sort of spirit that Pastor Ron Blanc was talking about this morning, where the mind filled with the word of God, set on the things of the spirit, 
That sort of spirit does not need to defend itself against evil. God will do it. The Lord's our banner. Don't try and defend yourself. You'll mess it up. Leave it to God. Yahweh said, can you? The Lord our righteousness. Yahweh shalom. That's what was said to Gideon when he had a problem, an assignment that was too big for him. The Lord revealed himself as the Lord peace. God's our peace. When I fail, he's my peace. When I face something too big for me, he's still my peace. Yahweh shalom, the Lord our peace. What smuts were saying? Rest, rest, like a bird in a nest. The Lord our rest. Yahweh shema, the Lord is there. The last verse of Ezekiel, the Lord is there. The Lord lives there. That city, which was a figure of the church, that's where the Lord lives. If you're in Christ's church by believing in his cross, that's what makes you a member of the church. Read Matthew 18, Matthew 16. Once you believe and trust in the merits of Christ, you're in his church. You may have a different name for your church to mine or to theirs, but you're in his church. There's only one great church, the church of Jesus Christ, composed of all who believe. And the Lord is there. What do you need to fear if the Lord is there? No wonder he says, fear not. You know, my friend, we've got to have a little Christian courage. There's a story about a witch who was turned into a cat. And so the cat chased a young lad. And it became bigger like a calf. And then it became bigger like a house. And the poor boy crumbled and fell. And the house was about to fall on him when he stood up and faced it and chased it. And it dwindled to a calf. And it dwindled to a cat. And then it ran underneath the witch's door. My friends, take your fear by the ear and say, see you here, out of here. Face it and it'll dwindle, it'll disappear. Fear not, fear not. During World War II in England, they, the enemy was dropping landmines by air. And after a terrible raid, the warden one morning, to his horror, looked up and dangling from a girder was a parachute with a landmine on it. So he called the squad of demolition and uh, a young lieutenant came. They put up a big ladder against the girder. He warned everybody back. And he went up there and with his wrench he took out the fuse. When he came down, someone at the foot of the ladder said, he said, boy, I don't know how you can do that without being scared to death. What do you mean to the left hand? I am scared to death when I attack that. He said, well, how do you manage? He said, I manage like this. He said, I know that if my hand trembles with fear, I may be blasted to eternity. So I resolve, though I feel scared, I will not fear. But how do you do that? Well, the young lieutenant was rather shy, but he said, it's like this. My mother, when I was a boy in Scotland, got me to learn the verse. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. He said, when I remember that, he said, I don't fear he said, I've been through many a valley of the shadow of death. I need not fear, for God is with me. Dr. Guthrie, a great Scottish preacher, tells how he had to take over another parish, and he travelled with his four-year-old boy long distances by coach and by train, by boat, many strange sights, many strange people, but the four-year-old boy never seemed upset or troubled. And Dr. Guthrie stopped to wonder, and then he realised why the little boy never let go of his hand. My friends, if you and I are holding on the hands of Christ and we're listening to his word as we reminded this morning, put it in our hearts. You're filled with the spirit if you're filled with the word, with a trustful spirit. We hold on the hand of God, we'll not be afraid.
Now, I want to give you one moment of truth. Does it mean I'm not a Christian if I'm afraid? This is a moment of truth that's really preached on. So let me say something quick. In two minutes' time, you're going to start throwing tomatoes. My friends, there is no such thing as perfect faith in a Christian. There's no such thing as perfect wisdom. And the only perfect righteousness in a Christian is that which is imputed. We are tainted with original sin from, from the cradle to the grave. And even in the best, most trusting believer, there'll be moments of darkness and tragedy and fear and anxiety. When Charles Darwin went to the London Zoological Zoo, there was a glass case with a cobra in it. He put his face against it and the cobra struck at him. Now, Darwin knew that there was a glass panel there that he couldn't be hurt, but instinct made him recoil. He tried the experiment again and again. Though his mind told him he was safe, he could never avoid shrinking when the cobra launched his vibrating, you see. My friends, you and I are yet human. Instinct is stronger than reason. You and I may flinch, but the Christian has a security underneath the flinching. The surface of his sea may be troubled, but there's a depth that no troubles can reach. That's why one poet put it like this. Let me no more my comfort draw from my feeble hold on thee. In this alone rejoice with awe, thy mighty grasp of me. Yes, your hand and mine is often feeble on him, but don't worry about it. Rejoice by faith that his hand on you is a mighty grasp that will not let you go. And he says, fear not. Why can he say it? Because his work is finished. He's dealt with sin. He's dealt with death. He's dealt with all your fears when he entered the darkness that we deserve. It is finished.